First of all, I think I owe you an explanation. The title of the talk tonight is The Forbidden Ernest Holmes, and I think uh, that deserves a little bit of explanation because really we're going to be talking about immortality. So the reason I designed this series and started it with this particular idea of The Forbidden Ernest Holmes some of you know that there are two Science of Mind books out there. There was the one published in 1926, which is the one I have here, and then there was also the one published in 1938, 12 years later. And I gotta tell you, same title, same author, Ernest Holmes, the founder of Science of Mind, the two books couldn't be more different. <laughs> Honestly, take a look sometime down in the bookstore here, you will discover that there are whole swaths of information that were added to the second one, and even more information taken out of the first one. So the information taken out of the first one is what I'm calling the forbidden Ernest Holmes. <laughs> and so I think we're gonna have a little fun with it. It's really that what got redacted. Are y'all familiar with the idea of redaction? You know, what the government doesn't want you to see on, on those secret papers that come out. Well, oddly enough, Ernest Holmes, though he was alive and well and great in 1938, he actually wasn't participating in the editing of his own book. And so literally, big swaths of information that used to be in the 1926 version just wiped out, and he was okay with it. He thought and trusted that the editor, who was an amazing woman in her own right, had done such a great job, like, who was he to mess with it? <laughs> and so, so, of course, we love our 1938 version with its Gene Houston uh, introduction and all, with the first four chapters that, you know, are kind of famous now. None of that in the first book, by the way. Uh, but I have a particular, perhaps twisted interest in what they cut out. And so tonight our theme is immortality, and I want to read to you from that 1926 version what he had to say about immortality, and then I'll compare it with what he said uh, 12 years later, or, or what I should say his editors said that he said <laughs> 12 years later. So this is the 1926, The Meaning of Immortality. Immortality means to the average person that man shall persist after the experience of physical death retaining a full recollection of himself and the ability to recognize others. If his full capacities go with him beyond the grave, he must be able to think consciously, to reason, to will, to affirm, to declare, to accept, to reject, to know and be known, to communicate and be communicated with. He must be able to travel about, to see and to be seen, to understand and to be understood. He must be able to touch, taste, smell, hear, cognate and realize. In fact, if he is really to continue as a self-conscious personality, he can do so only to the degree that he maintains a continuous stream of consciousness and self-knowingness. This means he must carry with him a complete remembrance. Okay, I think this is really interesting because I think it portrays a little bit of his early Christian upbringing, right? This, in a way, is the idea of heaven. Now, he's not mentioning the, you know, roads paved in gold or things like that, but, but honestly, we're going to taste and smell and hear and all of our 
human senses will be present as we move forward, right? It's almost as though we're being resurrected in the flesh, so to speak, and whatever goes next. And we'll have houses to live in and food to eat, and, and we'll get to go on trips to Mexico. Where did, where did Ruth go? She's disappeared already. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's almost as though we get another chance. And although uh, never, I think in the Science of Mind textbooks, either of them is reincarnation mentioned, you know, whether, whether you look at it as reincarnation or whether you look at it as a, as a rebirth into a body again, it's very much that kind of early Christian idea of, of, you know, literally sitting on the right-hand side of God, you know, being like a human in whatever comes next. Okay, um, I think it's interesting, only 12 years later, someone decided, oh, well, the hooey with most of that. <laughs> and 12 years later in the 1938 version, here's what it says. If our full capacities go with us beyond the grave, we must be able to think consciously, to will, to know, and to be known, to communicate, to receive communications. We must be able to see and be seen, to understand and to be understood. That's all that's left. All the tasting and touching and going on vacations and, you know, all the rest of it, gone. And I think it's really interesting. I think the idea of the editor, and one in which I think moves forward with science of mind is, no, we're not going to have some kind of a physical rebirth into another body. We're not going to go to heaven that's a place and live in a, a, a thing that's a body and taste again and, and touch again and smell again. Why, why would we, you know... Why recycle? Why, uh, why not move forward? And I think it's uh, equally interesting that uh, a little while later, uh, in the same uh, 1938 version of the textbook, they added a piece in that wasn't in the earlier version. Later he says, we shall keep moving on. We shall continue in our own individual stream of consciousness, but forever and ever expanding. So not a, not a uh, what do you want to say, not a recycling, not a, um, not a rebirth in terms of uh, 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 being born again in a, in a human body, but rather some kind of an evolution, some kind of a path onto something marvelous and more expansive, you know, maybe pure energy, maybe some, you know, other kind of form out there, but, but not just another human being. And I think the idea, especially in this later edition of the Science of Mind textbook, is when we portray ourselves metaphysically, we're open then to a more expansive take on things. We're open to, to something that isn't just a, a replay of what we've experienced here on earth. So today, tonight, when we talk about this idea of, uh, of immortality, it is with this later view of immortality in the Science of Mind textbook. Not that we'll you know, have a body and sit on clouds or, or uh, you know, whatever that earlier idea might have been. Uh, but rather the idea of expansiveness and freedom and moving on. So why is immortality, this idea, even sort of important? I mean, it's not that we can prove what's going to happen next, and, and I would argue that other, other than anecdotally, it may be even difficult to prove that something does happen next, although most of us have had some kind of an experience, I would guess, that would lead us to think that there is something after we move on, either through a loved one who has passed on and made their presence known, or, or, or through other information. But why do you think this is important? Well, let's start with a joke. 
So, a fellow recently picked a new primary care physician, and after two visits and some lab test, she was uh, telling him that he was doing fairly well for his age. Well, a little concerned about that comment, the fellow couldn't resist asking her, well, do you think I'm going to live past 80? So she starts quizzing him. Well, do you smoke or chew tobacco? Well, no, I was never into that. Well, she said, do you drink alcoholic beverages to excess? Well, that was a problem early in my life, but I've given them up. Then she asked, do you eat ribeye steaks, barbecued ribs, or other fatty red meats? No, he says, I've been a vegetarian now for 10 years. Well, do you spend time in the sun? Uh, are you out playing golf, sailing, ballooning, or rock climbing out in the, the, the sun? No, not really. Finally, she asked, do you gamble, drive fast cards? Are you sexually promiscuous or engaged in other uh, activities that keep you up late and out all hours? Well, no, no, that's just not what my life is like. So she looks at the guy and she says, then why do you care if you live past 80? <laughs> And so, I think that's why the discussion of immortality is important. We may not be able to define what's going to happen next, but if it's clear to us that something does happen next, I think it makes a big difference on how we live our lives right here and now. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So, if somehow you think, when this is done, it's done. That day that you die, you know, in our, in our little meditation that we did, I, I took you beyond the idea of death. But, but what if, what if our, our ideas and our sense of being tells us that, no, this is it. When I, when I die, when this physical body dies, that really is the end. Can you see how that might influence the way we live our lives? It might make us think that we've got to somehow get it all in. It might make us think that every experience that possible must be squeezed in somehow. It's kind of a, a results or, or end focus on things. And of course, towards the end of our lives, it could bring about some fear. Have I accomplished enough? Have I done enough? You know, uh, I'm not ready for this to be over. It could quite color our lives into a certain frame of mind if we think there is a finite end to it. In the science of mind, though, we believe that there is eternality, that we do move forward into something else. And even if we can't say what that something is, think about how that can color our lives. To begin with, we never have to be finished with anything. Now, I, I don't mean that in a, in a procrastinator sense, although, although I might try that with my husband and see how it works. Next time he wants me to do a, a chore, I'll just say, well, sweetie, there's an infinity of time. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll, see, <laughs> I'll see how that works. You let me know if you practice that one too. But I will tell you that I think it allows me to be a little more focused on what's going on right now. I think it allows me to not worry so much about whether something gets finished or whether I have a certain level of accomplishments or whether I've made a, a certain mark in the world. Uh, there, there will be a chance to do that also in, in whatever comes next, I believe it. It doesn't have to be in a form of a body. There will always be a, a the energy of doing well, the, the energy of accomplishment will always exist in whatever form it takes. I think this is my invitation to really kind of live it up now, 
to really understand that it's more about the journey, the eternal journey, and less about some result, especially some human result. Because what I'm pretty sure is, whatever happens to me next, whether it is some kind of an incarnation, or whether it's pure energy, whether it's, the, as Ernest Holmes said, a, an expansion of consciousness, I'm pretty sure it won't matter whether the car is washed or not. Do you know what I mean? I'm pretty sure it won't matter whether I get that doctorate degree or not. I'm pretty sure that some of those things that in my humanness I think are important to accomplish before I die, that in my humanness I think are important landmarks, are probably pretty ephemeral, probably don't matter as much as I think they do. And so the idea of immortality to me, super important because it says this is the eternal moment. This is the moment that I can reach out a hand in friendship and, and, and really express my love and comfort to someone in need. This, right now, I can put aside worrying about plans for the future, for the moment. Not that we shouldn't plan, not that it's not important to have goals and ideas and things like that, but, but the day-to-day -day orientation of my life can be about what's in front of me. Am I being my most authentic self? Am I reaching out in love? Am I making a difference? Not, not on some maybe world scheme of things, although that's good too, but in the scheme of friendship with my family, in the scheme of, uh, of helping a neighbor, in the, in the scheme of doing what's right in terms of peace and love and harmony with the folks around me. I think that is what eternality is about. If I am indeed to live for the end of time, then what will I remember myself for? So what was it like moving in the meditation beyond your death into whatever was next? Uh, some of you probably did experience something like a bit of a rebirth. Some of you probably experienced something like more like a free-floating energy kind of thing. And, and you know, it sort of doesn't matter in a way what we perceive it as if we sense that that is a reality for us, that there is something beyond. I think it just opens up the possibilities of living more freely every day in the now, knowing that there's always something to look forward to. You know, I occasionally am counseling with people who are in their 70s and 80s, and, and, and I got to tell you, sometimes they feel like they're washed up. They, they feel sometimes like they're invisible, like people have discounted them because at their age, what is there left for them to contribute? And I got to tell you, it doesn't matter what age anyone is, there are contributions to be made, powerful ones. And what I find most sad is when people sum their own lives up in a way that's, well, I'm kind of finished, that, that kind of implies there's not much more to do or to look forward to or things that can be done or, or ways that we can help the world. And, and I got to tell you, you know, one of my, my mentors is 88-year-old Laura that gets on the max train from her retirement home in, uh, in Gresham once a week and rides the train down to our church office to put together our Sunday programs. She is more active than I am. I mean, that's what she does one day a week, but you should look at her busy social schedule. She has not stopped. 
At 88, she is moving. This is the way I think of life. Is If indeed this is eternal, we should be living vigorously right up and pushing the limits of what we got here on the physical plane and start welcoming whatever comes next. You know, get ready with some gusto with whatever will come next. The other reason I think that it's important that we talk about the idea of immortality is a little more personal. You know, I had planned this talk uh, probably, I don't know what, Barb, a couple months ago anyway, and, uh, and I have to report that just since I was here last time, my best friend on the planet passed away. My friend Tilly and I worked together for 40 years at the telephone company, and we're good friends. Uh, the last 10 or 12 years, we uh, were regular ushers for the opera and for artist repertory theater. And uh, gosh, at least two or three times a month, we would be together, uh, usually ushering it. You may have even, we may have even seated you somewhere. I don't know if I, if I look vaguely familiar in a situation <laughs> not at church. <laughs> I may have been showing you to, to your seat at artist repertory theater, one of the other theaters. And so I had the... Uh, the opportunity of ushering my first show without Tilly the other night. And as the lights went down, my sense of Tilly sort of went up in a way. And I halfway saw across the theater a seat that looked like she was sitting in it. And what I realized is that grieving is not about saying goodbye to someone, that grieving is not a process of letting go or forgetting. It's actually a process of incorporating someone into your life when they're in a different form. Tilly's love and friendship are not diminished with uh, her passing. Tilly's... Uh, um, acerbic sense of humor, at least in my own mind, has not diminished with her passing. And, and I think the idea of immortality allows me to better understand and integrate her into my life now that she's living somewhere different. She's no longer living in Beaverton, right? She's, she's living in here and in here in some realm of existence beyond my understanding. I don't have to think of her as having a body anymore, and, and there won't be that kind of content, and I think that's the source of the grieving, right? I don't get to go out to lunch with her anymore. I may not get to, to usher with her and swap bad jokes with her anymore, but she is not diminished. Her essence is still there. And when the lights are lowered at the theater, her light rises up. And so the other amazing thing about immortality is our belief in it, I think, allows that healing of the heart that comes about perhaps in no other way because it isn't about saying goodbye. It's just simply about integrating a new form into your life, that that energy is still there that love is still there, and that life is still there. Well, we're going to close with some homework and another quote from an even later version of Ernest Holmes from 1966, talking about immortality. But first, the homework. I would like you to evaluate your life in light of your idea of immortality. So first of all, you've got to do a little soul-searching around what you believe happens after you 
What is it Shakespeare said? You shuffle off this mortal coil? Yeah, okay. I, did I get it right? So, so first of all, a little introspection. What do you think happens next? And then the real part of the homework is, are you living your life in a way that supports that? Are you living each day knowing that there is an eternity ahead of you? Are you living each day with the full amount and the full measure of love and light, extending your hand to others, living just as, as sweetly and fully as you can? So that's your homework. I'm going to close with a, just a final quote from Ernest Holmes. Now, this is from an even later version of... Uh, not of the Science of Mind textbook, but a book published in 1966 of Ernest Holmes called Ten Ideas That Make a Difference. And here's what he says as an even later and more seasoned writer in 1966. It is a happy outlook to feel that we are born of eternal day and that the spiritual sun can never set upon the glory of our souls. And it is a happy thing to believe that no one need to prepare to meet his God, for we are meeting him every day, in every hour, in every way. We meet him in the rising sun, in the budding rose, in the joy of friendship and love, and in the silence of our own heart. And as the crowning event of our experience here, the soul takes its flight to meet him as host in the higher realms of a sublime and eternal reality. Not apart from, but one with God. For the highest God and the innermost God is but one God. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence there is one life and one goodness. And you know what? It's eternal. And I know that means me. I know that my life starts and moves forward and forward onto something that's unimaginable, but yet within my own consciousness to feel and sense that eternality of my own heart, of my own thoughts, of my own consciousness. And as it is true for me, it is true for each person in this room. Each person here has that capability of sensing something, something beyond these bodies that we move around in, something beyond our span of 70 or 80 or 90 years on this planet, something beyond this physicalness of things. This is the truth of who we are as energy. This is the truth of who we are as that limitless soul. This is the truth of who we are as a part of the consciousness of God itself. And I'm simply grateful for this awareness. I, I live each day to its fullest, knowing that each day will be followed with another, another chance, a, a, another chapter in the universal book of my life. And in such gratitude, I just release this prayer into the activity and action of the law itself. I let it be and together we say, and so it is. <clears throat> Thank you so much for being here tonight. So glad you're here.